Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's, it's good to be with you again this morning. Um, I hope you had a wonderful 4th of July. I forgot that 4th of July was last week. And I had the most spectacular experience in Liberty, experiencing the 4th of July in the Valley. Um, it is quite an experience. <laughs> I had a Liberty Burger at the Liberty, what do you call that? The Liberty Town? Liberty Park. Liberty Park on Liberty Days or whatever you call it. I had a Liberty Burger. It was the most enlightening experiences of my life. Um, it was phenomenal, and <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it. But anyway, we're not talking about Liberty Burgers this morning. We're talking about 1 John. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 1 John. We'll be in chapter 5 this morning, and I'm excited to bring some truth to you. Um, John communicates some very fascinating things this morning, and I hope that uh, we'll all understand it better after this morning. But before we get into it, let's pray and ask for the, the Holy Spirit to help us understand his word this morning and that we will um, learn. So pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given it to us, that you have revealed yourself through your word to us. Thank you that we have the ability and we have the capacity to, to open, your, open your word this morning. Thank you for the freedoms to do so. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would understand um, the, the text this morning. I pray that um, your word would go forth, not my own, and may not return void. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin this morning, I want to paint a quick picture for you about the entire Bible. Okay? You say, how in the world are you going to do that? Great question. So don't, open, don't look at your Bibles. You can close your eyes if you need to. If you really want to, don't fall asleep, though. And let me just paint a picture for you um, about the Bible. Okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Now, God made a perfect world. God made a perfect world not because he needed it necessarily, not because God was somehow incomplete, not because God was lonely or God was sad. God needed nothing. He, sim he created simply because, well, God was awesome, and God in creation was, was a way to express his power and glory, and his creation could worship him because of that. He was worthy to do so. Now, God's most special creation was man, and God created man and woman uh, uniquely distinct from the rest of his entire creation. He interacted with them. He walked with them. He talked with them in the Garden of Eden. He desired to be close with his people. And then very soon after creation, though, we, we, we turn the page out of Genesis 2 into Genesis 3, and we read some very sad news that the people whom God created, who he wanted to be close to, rejected him. They were tempted by Satan, and they gave into the temptation. In doing so, they rebelled against their creator, and they desired independence and their own autonomy above their creator. Now, God, being a loving God, could have, well, God being a sovereign God, he could have completely destroyed his creation and started over. That's what most of us would have done. But God loved us enough, and he is loving. And instead of destroying this imperfect, imperfect rebellious creation, God would provide a way to save them, a way that would emphasize his power, and a way that would emphasize his faithful love. And in Genesis 3, we read of the curse that God put on mankind, but also we, we see a, a really distinct snippet of promise, of deliverance of one day. In Genesis 3.15, God speaks to the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. But then he says this, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And in those just few words there, we see a truth that one day, one day, God, although he put a curse on humanity, promised that there would be someone, 
a he who would have victory over Satan, who would have victory over the power of sin completely. And this is something that we can look forward to one day and the people that the Old Testament looked forward to. And throughout the Old Testament, we see snippets of this promise. God continues to promise that one day a Savior would come to provide deliverance. God promised an anointed one who would, be, who, who would be set apart for a specific purpose, a specific task, a Messiah who would far surpass any prophet, priest, or king. You see, when, when a prophet or a priest or a king was set aside to do a specific duty, they would be anointed with oil. In the same way, God, God would provide an anointed one, a Messiah, set aside for a very specific task one day. And the people of Israel, they, they looked and they waited and they yearned for a day when the Messiah, the anointed one, the, the one who is worthy and the one who is consecrated to accomplish the task of deliverance that God had provided so many years ago would come. And as we read the Old Testament, we see God's people. They waited and waited and waited for this promised deliverance as they suffered through the tyrannical reign of, of kings, brutal oppression of surrounding nations, enslavement, and persecution, but most importantly, their own sin and rebellion. Will the promised Messiah ever come? And as we read the Old Testament, this is the question that we keep asking. Where is the Messiah? Where is this anointed one? Will he ever come? And as we turn the page into the New Testament, we see something happen. We see the Messiah come in the man Jesus. God incarnate is here. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one who is worthy to take away the sins of mankind, and he does. He does so in the most humble and the most victorious way possible, crushing sin and death and rising victoriously from the grave. This is Jesus the Messiah. This is Jesus the Christ. The Christ. Now, as we study 1 John chapter 5 this morning, we're going to see John make a very specific emphasis on who Jesus is. John has already talked about Jesus. He's already given us a lot of information and statements about what Jesus has done and who this Christ is. But this morning, he describes it in much greater detail. So I hope to show you this morning, who is this Christ? Now, I'm going to prompt you with a question that kind of overarches our entire discussion this morning. And that question is this, what is the significance that Jesus is the Christ? Okay, What is the significance that Jesus is the Christ? Think about that. And I want to outline, us, outline um, the material this morning with two other questions. So like, think of it like point one and point two. There are going to be questions this morning. Number one, what are we to believe? That's found in verses one through five. And then the second question, our second point, is this. Who was this Christ? And can we be certain that what John has said about him is true? So let's jump right into it this morning. If you have your Bibles, we're in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, look there in verse 1. What are, t- what are we to believe? Verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Let's take a second and look at that very first phrase. Um, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. What are we to believe? Well, we are to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Very specifically, we are to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, this is, not, this is not merely some sort of intellectual acknowledgement that Jesus is the Messiah. It's not some sort of belief that Jesus just merely lived as a person. All right? A lot of scholars and, and, and secular individuals believe that Jesus was a person. That's, that's not, uh, people don't deny that. We're not necessarily just believing that he was the Messiah only for the Jews. And this is not some sort of vague religious commitment. 
Instead, believing that Jesus is the Christ. When John encourages the believers here, believe that Jesus is the Christ, we are to believe. It's a wholehearted trust. This is important. A wholehearted trust in the saving power of the anointed one, Jesus Christ. And the one who is set apart for a very specific purpose, this is the Christ. And John is saying to the believers here, you are to believe this individual. You are to believe, to, to put all of your trust, all of your faith in this person. Now, that's how John formats it. That's how he, he starts. And following this, John builds like, like, almost like Legos, okay? He, he builds on this statement, and he keeps going and going and going. And we, we see this in the latter half of verse 1. There are a few results of this belief. And let me go through some of the results of this belief. The first result that we see of believing that Jesus is the Christ is, number one, love for other believers. Love for other believers. And we see this in the, the latter half of verse 1. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Verse 1. So we are to love other believers. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Genuine believers with faith in Jesus Christ will show love for those who are also in Christ. Now, I, I use a couple of different commentaries when, when studying First John, um, but one of those is by Albert Barnes, and, and I, I really like what he said here. Let me, let me tell you what he says um, about this one specific part of the verse. He says, The general idea is that as all Christians are the children of the same Father, as they constitute one family, as they all bear the same image, as they share his favor alike, as they are under the same obligation of gratitude to him and are bound to promote the same common cause, and are to dwell together in the same home forever. They should, therefore, love one another. As the children of a family love their common father, so it should be in the great family of which God is the head. Because we all have a commonality of our one father, God, we are to love each other. So an evidence of your love for God is manifested in your love for others. So number one, a result of believing Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, is that you will love other believers. Second, though, the second result we see is in verses 2 and 3. It's a love for God and obedience to his commandment. So here we see further evidence of, of this love and identity as we love God and keep his commandments. Now let's look in verses 2 and 3. What does it say? By this, all right, by this, we're going to see this in a second, we know that we love the, we love the children of God. Here it is, when we love God and obey his commandments. Now, if you read the book of John or you're familiar with some of John's writings, this phrase will actually sound rather familiar, all right? In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says something to his disciples that sounds very similar to this. John 14, 15, if you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn there, I would encourage you to. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, if we take John, what John says in John chapter 14, the gospel of John, and we take what he says in 1 John, we almost get a cycle. Let me illustrate this for you. If you love God, a result of loving God will be that you will keep his commandments. Okay? And in evidence, and by keeping his commandments, by doing these things, you are showing that you love God. See how that works? So you love God, you keep his commandments, and you, by keeping his commandments, you show this love of God. Okay? It goes back and forth, and it's an evidence that we see in our lives. Now, if you were a disciple, let's say you're a disciple in the upper room and Jesus is telling this to you, and Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, as a disciple who has always followed Christ, I would be like, totally. 
I love you, Jesus. I, I've, I've interacted with you. I've seen you perform miracles. I've seen you do things. I've seen your love for me and others. And of course, I'll keep your commandments. And then you begin to think about that statement a little bit more. And you realize keeping commandments might not be as easy as you think. And this all happens within the span of five seconds. The disciples may have, may have gone, yes, of course I'll follow Jesus. Oh, how in the world am I supposed to keep all those commandments? I mean, Jesus said a lot of stuff in his earthly ministry. How am I supposed to keep all of that? Well, it's almost as if Jesus anticipated this, because look what he says in verses 15 and 16. Actually, just verse, um, verse 15. Excuse me, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, Jesus follows up his statement with commanding people to, to obey his commandments, to demonstrate their love for him. And, and he says, I will give you, I will empower you to do this by the power, not of you, but by the power of the helper, the Holy Spirit, the one who will indwell you after I leave. And he will be the one who will help you keep my commandments. God, or excuse me, Christ gave them the Holy Spirit to aid them in keeping God's commandments. Now, as believers, as we read 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, we might be faced with the same question. How in the world am I, am I to keep God's commandments? Have you ever felt that in your life before? How am I supposed to obey everything that God has says? I mean, Jesus said, Jesus said a lot. How am I supposed to adhere to all of that? Look in verse 3, what, what John says in, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, here it is, that we keep his commandments. Okay. What does he say next? And his commandments, though, are not burdensome. Now, does that mean that all the commandments that Jesus gives are incredibly easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy, to obey? No, not necessarily. Does it, are they easy to keep? Not, not necessarily. Does it mean that you will have no difficulties keeping God's commandments? Not necessarily. So, so what is John trying to say here by, by saying his commandments are not burdensome? Like, they don't give me a burden. Well, I, I think there's two things we can, we can, two ways to think about this. Number one, kind of what John has said, or what Jesus has said in, in um, John chapter 14. Number one, we have the Holy Spirit to help us. Now, John has already said this in the previous chapter, in chapter 4 of 1 John. Remember we talked about that last week, if you were here? How the, the one who is in, I think it's uh, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. He says, the Holy Spirit, the one inside of you, is greater than he who is in the world, right? So believers, you have a power inside of you to obey God. We have the Holy Spirit to help us. But second of all, and I'll say it this way, as believers, God instills his love in people, which causes them to have a right desire to love and please him. God puts his love inside of us. Remember that? We don't, we don't love God. Remember? God puts his love in us first. And so when God puts his love in us, we now have a desire to love and please him as believers. With a heart rightly aligned with God in his love, the commandments that God gives us are obeyed with a sense of, of eagerness, a sense of joy, a sense of freedom, not necessarily with a sense of malignance or oppression. God is not a God of oppression. Think of it like this, okay? Um, how many of you have ever tried to plug in a USB into your computer or whatever, okay? How many tries does that usually take? More than once, all right? Two to three tries to get a USB into your computer. Now, why is that the case? All right? if, it's, if it's a USB, and we call it a USB type A, it's a little rectangular box, and half of it's filled with, I don't even know what it is, and the other half is not. Why they made that design, I have no idea, okay? But it always seems that when you try to plug it into either the wall or your computer, 
You never can get it on the first try. Let's say this. Let's say you're going to have a phone call in a second. You're going to have a phone call. You're at your house sitting on the couch, and your boss is about to call you with really important information. And your phone's on 1%. What do you do? You plug it in, right? You've got to plug it in to get some, some juice to that bad boy, OK? And the only plug, though, is right behind the couch, conveniently placed there, right? So what do you do? Okay, you, you pull the couch out a bit, you take your arm, you pull your sleeve up, you grab your cord, you reach your arm down behind the couch, and you try to plug the USB into that tiny little slot. And you try, and you try, and you try, and you push harder, you push harder, to the point you're pushing the entire couch backwards, okay? Now, what is the problem there? Number one, you probably have it backwards. So what, what should you do in this situation? Also, has anybody ever been in this situation before? Am I the only one? Stink. <laughs> okay. Um, what do you have to do in order to get that USB to fit? Okay. If you keep pushing, is it going to work? No. No. You're going to push the couch out. You're going to push your couch out the window. Okay. You pull the USB out. You look at it. You reorient it. You reorient your mind. How is this going to work? Flip it around, and you try again. Okay. No matter how hard you push, you're never going to force that to work. I, that's kind of a dumb illustration, but, but right action, no matter how hard you try, will not necessarily produce correct results. To change our lives, we must first change how we think about God. Don't, think about your, don't, don't necessarily think about your love for God. Think about God's love for you. Okay? Think about the truth of God's unwavering love for you, a sinner. You are a sinner, and God loved you first. Think about that. Dwell on that. And having a mind that is rightly trusting in God, when you reorient your mind to think that way, when you know God in that way, it will naturally and joyfully produce a spirit inside of you that is willing to follow him. So, so by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you, you can keep God's commandments. And by reorienting your mind on who God is and correctly thinking about who God is, that will radically change your ability to follow God's commandments. So we've seen already um, a, result of a result of believing in Jesus Christ is that you have love for other believers. Number two, you have love for God and you have an, a, a desire to obey his commandments. And number three, we see in verses four and five, you have the ability to overcome the world. Now, how do we overcome the world? What does it say in verses four and five? And everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Here it is, our faith. Who, it, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes in Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God? And so the victory, in order to overcome the world, it's not what you do. It's, what does it say here? It's your faith. Is it your quantity of faith? Is it the quality of faith? No and no. It's rather the source of your faith, which John says in verse 5. It's Jesus Christ. It's when you believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, John, uh, Jesus says in John 16, 33, Talking to his disciples before um, his death, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Believers, we don't overcome the world in our own power. Okay? We don't overcome the, the, the sinfulness of the world in our own power. We do that because of our faith in Christ. Right? It's not us, it's Christ who has already overcome that. And with our faith in him, we are able to as well. Only those who believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ, can have victory over the world. So that's, that's my first point, the first question to open our time this morning. What are we to believe? We are to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And if we do that, there are results there. But secondly, 
I want you to think with me. How has John been speaking up to this point? What has John been saying in his, in his book? John has talked a lot about Christ. He's talked a lot about Jesus. He's said a lot that he's done. John has been telling us his own personal experience with Christ. He says this at the beginning in, in chapter 1, um, where he talks about that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. He's talking about himself and the other apostles. We've touched with our hands. We want to communicate this truth to you believers. John's this passionate old man who wants to tell these believers all about Christ and all about his experiences with Christ. And up to this point, it's been John's testimony. He's been basing all of this on his own testimony. But he does something very interesting here. And he caters to the, to the Jewish audience. Now, the Jewish audience, they were, were very particular about what they believed, kind of like some of us are today. In fact, this began back in Deuteronomy. Um, but the, the Jews, in order to believe some, something that was true, to believe something to be true, they had to have at least two to three witnesses to prove such a thing. Now, that makes sense for us, right? To corroborate evidence, to make sure it is true, we want witnesses. We want testimony. And so what John does here is he switches from, from telling his experiences about Christ, and he actually gives three very important truths, not from his own experience, but experiences and facts that the Jews would know. And so you, we can see here that, that John is very careful in catering to his Jewish audience. He's attempting to show them, to point them to a right understanding of who Christ was by showing them specific examples. Now, what are these examples? And we see these in verses 6 through 8. So let me read this for us, and then we'll talk about these three examples briefly. Verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood. All right, Christ here, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, and he said three, and all the Jews' ears perked up, okay? There are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and all three, all these three agree. All these three agree. We're answering the question here, who was this Christ, and can we be certain that what John says is true? Now, John proves it to us here. The first, um, John provides three concrete, believable examples that prove who Christ was. Not just that he existed, but they prove his identity. They prove that Jesus was the Christ. He was this anointed one from God. First of all, we see it in the Spirit. In the Spirit. Um, in, the, in the latter half of verse 6, he says, And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Okay? The Holy Spirit lives inside of each and every believer and aligns our thinking with truth. In fact, the, the Holy Spirit is, def, is defined as being the truth. Look what it says in verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because, why? The Spirit is the truth. So the Spirit who lives inside of us aligns our hearts, aligns our thinking with what is true. So one responsibility of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness that Jesus has come. It's almost as if in a courtroom you call a, a witness to the stand to give testimony to the case. The Holy Spirit does that in our hearts. He gives testimony to our belief in Christ, about we, uh, how we know who Christ was. But the second example that John brings up is a, is a concrete time and a concrete event, and that is the water. Now, we read the water, and we say, what in the world does that mean? Okay. Um, let's see, verse, uh, verse 7. There are three that testify, the Spirit, we talked about that, and the water and the blood. The water is, is most likely, and there's some, some debate among scholars, but there's a consensus that 
the water is referring to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, his baptism. Okay? Now, what happened at Jesus' baptism? You can recall. Uh, Matthew writes about this in Matthew chapter 3. But what happened? Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and what immediately happened afterwards? All right? The heavens were opened. The heavens were opened, and then the, Holy, the, the, the Spirit descended like what? Like a dove, okay? So the heavens, the heavens break open, and the Spirit descends like a dove. So we have Jesus here. We have the Spirit descending, and then who speaks next? God, the, the Father, correct? The Father speaks, and what does he say? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so we, here, we, here we see the, the three persons of the Trinity at one time, at one singular event. But more than that, we see this, this heaven-to-earth interaction. And this is like one of two times in, in Jesus' ministry where we see this very specifically. Okay? We see it at his baptism. Jesus' ministry is focused on, on the things on earth and the miraculous events on earth and the supernatural on earth. But here we see heaven and, and earth connecting in a miraculous way. So at the water, the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry, we see a direct supernatural interaction between heaven and earth. But then again, we see this at the end of Christ's ministry, okay? Almost like goalposts or something. Um, we see the beginning here, and we see the end here with the blood. Now, the blood is referring to Christ's death on the cross. What happened at Christ's death on the cross? It was the accomplishment of his earthly ministry. We read about this in Luke 23, where it became dark. There's this supernatural darkness that, that blanketed the earth at the time. In the sixth hour, the darkness was over the whole land. This is Luke 23. While the sun's light faded and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And again, we see the supernatural occurrence between heaven and earth. Jesus communicating with his Father and vice versa. And, and this supernatural event happening, heaven to earth. And these are these two bookending points in Jesus' ministry. And so what, what John is communicating to these people is that this Jesus is the Christ. This Jesus here is the Christ. This Jesus here, he is the Christ. And we see this all throughout his ministry. But Jews, listen to me. These two specific examples, oh, these illustrate that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the one who is worthy and so um, John illustrates Jesus's or Christ's identity with these, two, with these two concrete examples in history, but also by telling them you have the spirit inside of you to prove this as well. So these three examples all agree and point to the person and work and identity of Jesus Christ. And so with that being said, I want to direct our minds to, to a brief application to, to close our time this morning. And the application is found... In verses 9 through 12, I'm not going, going to go into great detail here, but um, I want to point our, our, our minds and our hearts to one application. Read, read in verse 9 with me. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. And John goes, go, continues to go on and talks about the testimony um, that, that we have in ourselves and that we, we have from the Spirit and how that, how that um, influences our life and how we live. But I want to focus on verse 9 real quick. The testimony of God being greater than man. Now, all throughout our lives, probably this morning, you have heard the testimony of man. Okay? 
How many of you looked at the weather this morning in some way? Or within the past 24 hours, you checked the weather, okay? That's a testimony of man. We, we see the testimony of man in other areas. When people talk to us, we believe them. The testimony that we hear and that we believe. And God says, the testimony of God, or, or John says here, the testimony of God is greater than the testimony of man. God is, God is trustworthy. Let me illustrate this for us right, right now. Let's say that Derek came to me next Sunday, and he, and he was telling me about this wonderful new restaurant in Huntsville. Okay? It's this, it's a, I, I'm not a huge seafood fan. Let's say I was a seafood fan. Okay? I love lobster. It's this new seafood restaurant in Huntsville. And what they do is this. It's right next to the reservoir. It's a beautiful, picturesque location. I mean, you, 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 can, you can eat your dinner, and you can look out, and you can watch the boats drive around. You can see the mountains. You see the little cars going around like, like ants um, around the mountains on the roads. It's a beautiful spot. Okay? But also, the spot's beautiful. The food is delectable. All right? What they do is they take a refrigerated box truck. They go to Maine every week. They pick up an entire box full of Maine lobster. Okay? And they take that lobster, and they go back to, to Utah, a landlocked state, and they, they serve fresh Maine lobster, like three days old. That sounds pretty good, you know, like butter and everything, okay? Um, and it's, it's delectable food, but even better than that is the price, okay? The price is, it's uncomparable to anything. And seafood's expensive, but this is cheap. In fact, you could take your entire family there, and it'd be cheaper than eating at home, which is crazy to think of. Let's, let's say... This actually existed, okay? And, and he's, telling me, he's telling me all about this, and I'm listening to him, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then I stop, and I just stare at him dead in the eyes. And then I say, man, I, I really want to believe you right now. I'm just, I'm really struggling to believe you. He's like, why are you struggling to believe me, man? Like, I, I've told you this. It's not this crazy, crazy idea, okay? It's a, it's a restaurant, right? It's a cool restaurant. Why are you struggling to believe me? I, I know, I, I should believe you. I really want to believe you. I want to believe that what you're saying is true, but God, I'm just really struggling to right now. Okay? Now, that would be really odd, and he'd probably be very confused with me. Why is this guy just not taking my word for what it is? What have I done... To, to make myself untrustworthy. Have, have I done anything? Have I wronged him in any way? I think oftentimes this is how we, we talk to God. We go to prayer, or we think, and it's almost as if we, we pray to God and we say, God, I, I really want to believe you right now. I really do. I, I really, 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 really want to believe you. But I'm just struggling. I'm struggling to trust you. I'm struggling to just believe what you say. And it's as if God is like, what have I done to prove myself untrustworthy? And John has already said that, that, Jesus, uh, that God is the one who, who faithfully forgives you. God is the one who loved you first. God is the one who sent his only son to demonstrate that love. God is the one who has, has sent his son to be the propitiation for your sin. He saved you. He's the one who gives you the Holy Spirit, the one who, who indwells inside of you. And after all of these things, you still don't trust me? How remarkable is that? And we say, well, yeah, I, I know that, God. I really want to believe you, but I'm, still, I'm just struggling. And God is like, well, 
what have I done to prove myself untrustworthy to you? I've done nothing. In fact, I've done everything for you. I've loved you. I sent my son. Just believe me. Trust me. Okay? Oftentimes, this is our attitude towards God. We want to trust, but we don't. don't we don't. Why? For various reasons. And, and we may have difficult things in life. We, we may be going through a very hard time. But believers, what do you know about God? What do you know about your God? Don't just force yourself to trust. If I just trust, if I just trust, I try harder, I try harder. No, 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 no. What do you know about God? What has God, what has God revealed about himself to you by using men like John? What do you know about God? And how does that change the way that you trust God? Okay? It's not as much a forceful thing that we make ourselves do, but it's a mentality that when we, when we understand how much God loves us, when we have this right mentality here, then it, it becomes natural to trust God. God is trustworthy. The testimony of, of God is greater than any testimony of man. And that's one point we can pull from this. And, and that's one thing I want to emphasize for us today. Trust God. Don't force yourself to trust God, but trust God because of what you, what you know about him and what he has given to you and what he has shown you through his word, what he has revealed about himself to you. Have faith in, in the anointed one. Have faith in Christ. Not in just the man Jesus, but in Jesus who was the Christ. This is a powerful, there's a very, very big distinction there. Jesus was not just a man, he was the Christ. It's an illustration of God's love for us. And so believers, I, I challenge you today, and myself as well, trust Christ, not because of you, but because of what you know about God. Because you know God loves you. And remember, he loved us well before we ever loved him, right? Wow, that's amazing. So I hope that's encouragement for you this morning. Trust God. He is trustworthy. Believe in Jesus, who was the Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. Thanks for showing it to us and revealing it to us by the power of your spirit. I, I pray that um, your word would touch the hearts this morning. Lord, if I, if I said anything wrong or in error, that, that your Holy Spirit would be the one who, who would correct that in the hearts of the believers here. That, that your Holy Spirit is the one who, who changes lives. Um, Father, may, may your word continue to go forth today. May, may you continue to, to speak to us through your word to the rest of the service this morning. And that we'll leave here with a better understanding of who you are, God. Again, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for loving us well before we ever loved you. And Lord, may we trust you because of what we know about you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.